Good morning. I'm so glad that you're here today. For those of you that are in person and online, welcome to Green Lake Church. We have a few announcements today. First, I would like to invite up Michelle for her announcement. First of all, I'd like to make a few words of introduction for our organist this morning. Dr. Cleveland is doing a recital in Maryland this weekend, so Laura, we met, has graciously agreed to play for our service today. Laura is the organist at the Bellevue First Congregational Church, where she has been for about six years. She's no stranger to Green Lake. She has substituted for Wanda in the past, but it's been quite a while, and this is her first time to play our relatively new organ. So uh, we want to welcome you, Laura. Um, Secondly, I just wanted to say a couple things about the Thanksgiving baskets. Uh, We will be assembling those and delivering them uh, next Sabbath. There are a few items on the Google document that still haven't been uh, spoken for. So if you would like to contribute to this project, just go to the link that's in the bulletin and in the Thursday evening email and sign up for what you would like to contribute. All of you who have signed up, please have your, uh, your items in the kitchen by 10 a.m. Uh, next Sabbath morning so that the deaconesses can assemble the Thanksgiving bags and then take them up to the fireside room before the service begins. We're doing something a little different this year. The elders will be distributing many of the bags as part of their monthly visitation program. But we don't have enough elders to deliver all of the bags, so we will still need several more volunteers. So if you would like to deliver one or more of the bags to someone that you perhaps know or would like to reconnect with, please come to the fireside room after the service next Sabbath and look for me or one of the other deaconesses, and we'll pair you up with a Thanksgiving bag to deliver. Thank you. Uh, Next, I will invite Danelle up for a few announcements. Good morning, everyone. Um, I just wanted to point out a couple of things. First off is it's game night tonight, and we've been trying to get that started up and going again, and it's been really fun when there can be plenty of people there. We are doing it in the fireside room, and we set up a few tables um, we'll bring games, but if you want to come, bring your games too. And we set them all out and just pick and choose from what we have. And it's just a really good social time. And snacks will be provided, so you're all invited to that. And second of all, just wanted to draw your attention to the Thanksgiving toy drive. We're doing the toy drive this year um, instead of the big food drive where we usually have put all of the big food baskets up here. We're doing a toy drive instead for the Mockingbird family mingle. And that's a, um, a, a group that um, is for foster children and to support them. And it's just a really great way that we can really specifically meet a need in the community. Um, so, And then just to note, the deadline is November 26, and that's three weeks away. Um, So, yeah, that's just something a little bit different and new this year. And if you have any questions, you can talk to Pastor Kevin or Brian Carley or myself. 
It is not in the bulletin this week, but it will be next week with more details, and it is in your Thursday email, but Greenlee Church is having a block party on December 9, so that is also the pathway to Lights Day, and so we'll go and we'll tour the new house and the Meridian house, and we'll sing songs, and we'll eat together, so if you want to be a part of that, look out for more details on that. And last, I will invite Pastor Kevin for an announcement. If you look in your bulletin, you will see a picture of a young, beautiful couple. And, you know, I know that they are slightly embarrassed by any recognition in this way, but it is Dawn and Shirley's 60th anniversary. We're going to show a few of the pictures from their wedding on the screen. And I want to say just a short little thing about them as well. As everybody knows, Dawn and Shirley are a generous, loving, kind couple, and they were actually our first introduction, Danelle and I, to Green Lake. As we were staying in the Meridian House, we were met by Don and Shirley, and we just felt, experienced the love right from that start. And I know many of you have felt that and experienced that as well. The next interaction that I saw was this man with a shovel in the backyard of the Jensen House, just digging away. And that man was a young man by the name of Don, and it just was two or three years ago. Don and Shirley, we're thankful to have you here, and I know you didn't want extra attention per se, but at Potluck, go ahead and share uh, appreciation for Don and Shirley, and maybe ask them the question, how, how do you do it? How, how does one make it this long and, and listen in to some of the wisdom? At this time, we are going to pass the peace, greet one another, share love with one another. And when you hear the sound of the organ in a couple minutes after that, it's our cue to come together for the next part of the service.
bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be in this place and that you are present with us. We pray that as we continue to grow in your spirit, that we would be renewed and that we would be motivated to have courageous empathy. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. Our offering today is for the world budget of the church, and that's known as the annual sacrifice for missions. Um, This particular tradition started way back in 1922 uh, when the World Church appealed to members for extra support to avoid bringing missionaries back during a very tough time in the budget at that time. And since that time, it's been going on every year. The proceeds continue to support those working in mission areas around the world, ministering to people's needs in very practical ways. So please give to this worthy cause as well as to our local church budget and other needs in our local community around the world that bless others. Let's bow our heads.
Dear Lord, thank you for all the blessings that you've brought to our lives, for the opportunity to freely contribute to the work of the church, both here in Seattle and around the world. Bless our gifts today and multiply them. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, children. If it's okay, I'm going to sit here because I have some things to pull out of this bag. Okay. Let me get them out. These. And we have these. Oh, these are heavy. The last ones, these are really big. Okay, so I brought four different pairs of shoes this morning, and I thought that we could think about the people who might have wore these shoes. So let's look at these over here, the big ones first. Those are basketball shoes. Yeah? Oh, they're basketball shoes. Let's see, I think that the person who wore these shoes probably had the best game of their life. They probably scored the winning basket. 
won the game. All the fans came out and they were cheering. Okay, and then let's look at these. These you might wear to go on a hike, right? Well, I think the person who wore these put them on to go on a hike because they just had a fight with their best friend. And they needed a walk to clear their mind. Let's look at these. These shoes, they belong to a student. This student wore these shoes to school, but that day they had a really big math test and they weren't sure if they were ready. And then these roller skates. The kid who wore these went roller skating with friends. They skated, they ate snacks, they had so much fun. Okay, so now that we know what the people did that wore these shoes, I need your help. Could you guys tell me how you think the people felt that wore these shoes? Let's, let's start with these over here, the big basketball shoes. Yeah, how do you think the basketball player felt? Good. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they felt good. Anyone else have any ideas? Let's see. I know if I won the game-winning shot and all the fans came out and they lifted me up, I would be on cloud nine. I would just think that was the best day. I would feel joy. I would feel excitement. I would feel proud. Okay, let's see next. The person who went on a hike after they had a fight with their best friend, how do you think they felt? Do you have any ideas? Yes. Relaxed. Yeah, hikes are relaxing, but before they went on the hike, what do you think they felt? Mad. They could have been mad. They could have been sad. They could have been disappointed. Sometimes we feel all those things, frustration, when we have fights, don't we? And then these shoes. The student who went to school and had a big math test. Have you guys ever been in that situation? What do you think this student was feeling? Anxious. Anxious, yes. We feel anxiety when a test comes, don't we? Did you have an idea, too? Nervous. Yes, and we feel nervous, don't we? I know I've definitely felt that feeling. And then the last ones here, these roller skates. What do you think the kid who had the roller skates on felt? Does anyone over here have any ideas? Okay. What do you think? Again, happy. Yes, I think they were very happy. They probably felt excited, thankful for having time with friends, joyful. So what we did here is we're really talking about emotions and empathy. And empathy is something that Pastor Kevin has been talking about. But those can be kind of big words, can't they? Well, emotions are just your feelings. It's as simple as that. And then empathy is understanding how someone else feels. It's seeing things from their perspective. It's seeing how would I feel if I were in their place. So the Bible tells us to feel empathy, and the empathy is good. In Romans 12:15, the Bible says, 
to be happy when other people are happy and to be sad when other people are sad. And Jesus, he showed empathy as well. When he went to the grave of Lazarus and everyone was grieving and crying because he was dead, Jesus cried too. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus, but he was sad because the people around him were sad. Empathy helps us. It's easier to be kind to others when we have empathy. It's easier when we see how we might feel if we were walking in someone else's shoes. So I challenge you next time you have a disagreement with someone or you don't understand why someone's doing something, try imagining how you would feel if you were them. And you can take your bucket now. Thank you. Dear God in heaven, we are grateful to be here this morning in the peace and quiet and the beauty of this sanctuary. Thank you for the blessings you bring into our lives every day. There are so many others in this world right now who are not so fortunate, and we lift them up before you this morning. Please be with them and bless them with your abundant love. Give them the peace that passes understanding, especially those who are facing another day of war and strife and turmoil around them. The world around us is often difficult, but we ask that you help us to live as Jesus taught and modeled for us. Help us to focus on others and to make their lives brighter and better. 
Thank you for the example of Don and Shirley Mayer right here in our own congregation. With love for each other for the last 60 plus years and for the world around them as they've focused their love outside of that little circle. Strengthen us to bring encouragement and kindness to all those whose lives we touch. We ask that you bless those who could not be with us today due to various health issues. In particular, we bring before you those who are staying in our guest suites while they seek treatment in Seattle. And we pray for those who have asked to be remembered in our collective prayers. Dorothy Bagsby, Russell Blair, Barry Gale, Ann Jensen White, Jody and Erling Loving, Eileen Montero, Kirkland, Ndegi Nasser, Galen Salisbury, and Donna and Ken Van Fossen. Be with them with your healing hand. Renew their caregivers so that they may continue their ministries of mercy. And now we ask you to bless our worship. Help us to hear and understand the message that you will bring to us through Pastor Kevin. May our hearts and minds be touched by your spirit, and may we leave refreshed and ready for a new week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's Old Testament reading comes from Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. It reads, So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, and do not panic before them. For the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you.
The New Testament reading is as follows. For Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. You have heard of the law that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. May the Lord bless the hearing of the word. If you look in the pew in front of you, grab a hymnal, and I want to read some lyrics of a famous song. It's on page 647. The song was written in 1961, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, maybe better known as Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory. I'll read it here now. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Line two. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. His truth is is marching on. Last verse. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us live to make men free. His truth is marching on. This was a Civil War song that helped in the movement of the abolition of slavery. And it's meaningful, and it's strong in its lyrics. But recently, it was just a couple years ago, I heard a reimagining of this song by an artist named Audrey Assad, who spoke with the lyrics with an emphasis on peace. And I want you to read or listen to the lyrics that Assad wrote. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You are speaking truth to power. You are laying down the sword, replanting every vineyard till a brand new wine is poured. Your peace will make us one. I've seen you in our home fires burning with a quiet light. You are mothering and feeding in the wee hours of the night. Your gentle love is patient. You will never fade or tire. Your peace will make us one. In the beauty of the lilies, you were born across the sea with a glory in your bosom that is still transfiguring, dismantling our empires till each one of us is free. Your peace will make us one. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Your peace will make us one. War at times is necessary. But even some of the brightest military minds would do, say that we would do well to spend more time contemplating the ways of peace and what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. For instance, consider the words of five-star military general Omar Bradley, who says, We have men of science, too few men of God. We have grasped the mystery of the atom and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. 
The world has achieved brilliance without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. We know more about war than we know about peace, more about killing than we know about living. If we continue to develop our technology without wisdom or prudence, our servant may prove to be our executioner. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confronted a paradigm. The expectation was that the Messiah would come to bring vengeance, pour out his wrath, and make Israel great again. In fact, in his manifesto, the first sermon that he preached in Luke chapter 4, we, we hear his words. He opens up the book of Isaiah, the prophecy pointing to himself, and he reads all the parts that they were expecting. He's going to open blind eyes. He's going to set captives free. But they were waiting for the punchline. If you go back to Isaiah that Jesus is quoting from, it speaks of vengeance and wrath. And Jesus didn't go there. Left that part out. In the Sermon on the Mount, there would have been expectation, anticipation for this moment. There was a rumor going around that this could be king. They wanted to make him king. And gathered together are thousands of people. And Jesus begins his message. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Now, slow down just for a second. We've heard this so many times. We have it as plaques. We have it as picture framed in our homes. We sometimes don't get the message and the meaning of how this would have landed to Jesus' audience. They are hungry for vengeance. They are ready for war, and they're ready for a king. In the genealogy of David... To fight. Jesus says, No, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. This isn't a home run sermon. This isn't the way to win over that crowd, but Jesus is presenting a different way. And the text that we're using in this new series on courageous empathy encapsulates the whole thing. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Not my kingdom, not my way. And yet, the Bible itself does not seem to be against war in all circumstances. We read in Ecclesiastes that there is a time for war and a time for peace. And Jesus once marveled and spoke favorably about the faith of a Roman soldier. Throughout history, there has been soldiers of faith, and we honor them today, on this Veterans Day, recognizing that many of our freedoms come as a result of the veterans that chose to go towards the conflict to help defend their country people who have done their best to follow their convictions and defend their country in difficult times. One difficult time that we will talk about today is the circumstances that arose around the Vietnam War. 
There was the fear of communism. And American leaders did not want to make the same mistake that many of them feared that they made in World War II. That was acting too slowly. They thought the time to act was now, and part of the response came from that place. Most of the draftees were young, 18 to 21-year-old men, and they were asked to do impossible things. I have empathy for any person who has been asked to participate in war. I, I don't blame any soldier for the atrocities that occur, but I do wish and pray that as a society, we could learn from the mistakes that we have made. Ken Burns, the famous documentarian, has spent his life documenting lessons that we can learn from our mistakes. He has done documentaries on the Civil War, the World Wars, and perhaps some of you have seen the the most recent series on war that he did. It was on the Vietnam War. Has anybody seen this series by Ken Burns? 18 hours documenting interviews, people that were there, both Vietnamese and American, and it shows the complexity that goes in within the trauma of war. One person that reflected on this series wrote for the New York Times, and I want to share what he said about this series. He says, The saddest thing about this Elgaic documentary may be the credit it extends to its audience. The Vietnam War still holds out hope that we might learn from history after presenting 18 hours of evidence to the contrary. When this series came out, I was listening to an NPR interview on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where Ken Burns was being interviewed, and he was asked specifically about this quote. Terry Gross basically said to him, like, you know, you've spent your life trying to help us learn the lessons of history. What do you think about what the New York Times had to say? And I want to share with you what Ken Burns said in this moment, because I do think it's profound. So I'll share the clip now. I think it's a beautiful sentence, and I will hold to my optimism. I think history has made me an optimist, despite the fact that it shows you that human nature doesn't change, that the same venality is present, the same abstraction of war is present, the same greed is present, but so is also the same generosity and the same um, love. And war is human nature on steroids. And so it's, a, it's an eminently studyable thing. And we assume it is just all negative. But in fact, the free electrons that war gives off in all the instances that I've, I've tried to tackle it reveal as much about the positive sides of human nature. And, and maybe the reason why we, you know, none of us are getting out of this alive, Terry, and, and we could reasonably be assumed to be huddled in the fetal position, but we don't. We raise families, and we plant gardens, and we write symphonies, and we try to make films and talk about history. And maybe there's something that comes from that that sticks. In every war, in every moment of history, including the present time, there is beauty in the midst of the ashes. There is good if we have our antennas tuned to it. There are doctors and soldiers that are trying to do the right thing. People doing their best to learn from these mistakes. 
It was interesting as I was listening to this interview that one of the things that Ken Burns pointed out was that General David Petraeus, who helped lead the United States in Iraq and Afghanistan, did his Ph.D. dissertation on Vietnam. It's interesting because sometimes you look at world events and we think, did we learn anything? The same mistakes seem to be repeated. And it made me curious, so I I looked up a little bit more about what David Petraeus learned from these experiences. And in 2021, General Petraeus did an interview with Vietnam Magazine. And he was speaking about the complexity of warfare. And he boiled it down to one main, most important lesson that he has learned in all of his time in war. And he said he has kept it ever since he first saw it when he was in the operations center in, in Mosul. He, he took it with him everywhere that he went. And I want to share how he boiled it all down for himself. General Petraeus said, the sign that he keeps everywhere with him said, will this operation take more bad guys off the street than it creates by its conduct? Okay? In war, oftentimes we're responding to horrible things. And there's a calculation that goes in. Okay, if we respond... With what level of force will it do what we need or trying to do? And if we over-respond, will that create more problems than we started with? He goes on to say, It is in fact very likely the most important question of all that we should ask when contemplating committing American sons and daughters to combat, and one should repeatedly ask again and again once in combat. We have the opportunity to learn from this wisdom, to learn from our mistakes. But in order to do so, we have to be willing to admit when we are wrong. And that takes courage that is exceedingly rare. One person we can learn from in this regard was the Secretary of Defense during part of the Vietnam era, a man by the name of Robert McNamara. He wrote a book called in retrospect, the tragedy and lessons of Vietnam. And he says, frankly, in this book, we were wrong, terribly wrong. We owe it to future generations to explain why. This sort of introspective reflection, like I said, is not common coming from political world figures. In the award-winning documentary film, The Fog of War, he goes into this in more detail. It's extraordinary in that you have a global leader admitting to blunders, and he gives 11 lessons that he has learned. I want to play just a short clip where you see this interaction of a person that in retrospect is thinking, maybe we could have done some things differently. So here's this clip from the film Fog of War. What about the contention that your attitude is sometimes arrogant, that you never admit you were wrong? Have you ever been wrong, sir? I've asked if Robert McNamara assumed the responsibilities of Secretary of Defense, and I'm glad and happy to say that he has accepted this responsibility. I think the human race needs to think more about killing. 
How much evil must we do in order to do good? In that single night, we burned to death 100,000 Japanese civilians in Tokyo, men, women, and children. Conventional wisdom is don't make the same mistake twice. Learn from your mistakes. There'll be no learning period with nuclear weapons. You make one mistake, you're going to destroy nations. We saw Vietnam as an element of the Cold War, not what they saw it as a civil war. High government leaders aren't generally known for flaunting their airs. While he never issued a formal apology for his role, McNamara, who died in July 2009 at age 93, made clear that he was haunted by his blunders. He said, People don't want to admit they made mistakes. This is true of the Catholic Church, it's true of companies. It's true of non-governmental organizations, and it's certainly true of political bodies. And it was from this context that as I looked at the lessons that he tried to demonstrate in the film Fog of War, that the first lesson especially stood out to me. I want to put it for you on the screen. Lesson number one from Fog of War is empathize with your enemy. Because what happens when you don't see the enemy as a fellow human being, is you begin to dehumanize them. You become racist in your rhetoric, and when you dehumanize and become racist in your rhetoric, you can do atrocities that you would never do if you saw that person as a fellow human being. In the interview with Ken Burns that I played earlier, there was a Vietnam veteran that called in, and he described what it was like to arrive on the scene at Vietnam when all the tensions were there, and in the midst of the horrors of war, he saw the racism that was on full display. He put it like this, I learned everything I needed to know about what this war fundamentally related to when I heard the term, you can see it there, applied to every Vietnamese regardless of their political party. It was a race war. You cannot save those whom you do not love. When we lose the ability to empathy, to empathize with the enemy, we start to sweep with a broad brush, and we lose the ability to actually help to save those people because we've lost the ability to love them. There's a fantastic book that is not light reading, so don't go there if you're triggered by these things, and understandably so. It's called Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam by Nick Terse. And in his interviews, he said, veterans that I talked to told me that, I, that from the moment they got into basic training, they were told, never call them Vietnamese, 
call them, and you can read for yourself the slurs that were mentioned. Anything to take away their humanity, to dehumanize them, and make it easy to see any Vietnamese, all Vietnamese, as the enemy. The lack of empathy and dehumanization is what led to the 1968 My Lai Massacre. On March 16, 1968, between 347 and 504 unarmed Vietnamese civilians were gunned down by members of the U.S. Army in what became known as the My Lai Massacre. Now, I don't want to focus today on all of that darkness. We'll go there for a little bit, but I want to focus on the light the courage, the good that came out of this atrocity. But first we have to ask the question, what happened? How did it happen? Well, in the conflicts of the war, the Viet Cong had started to attack stronghold cities that the Americans thought were untouchable. And there was an order given out to go into this area and attack And the American intelligence at the time said it was not civilians, it was Viet Cong that were there. And this Company C, Charlie Company, went in, and they were given orders to kill anything that moved, and they did that. They destroyed villages, burned, raped, murdered, and atrocities were committed. But at the same time, there was this helicopter team with three men, Hugh Thompson, Lawrence Thompson, or sorry, Hugh Thompson, Lawrence Colburn, and a man by the name of Andrita. And they were called to kind of fly over and take enemy fire. But they looked down and they saw that there was this lady, a Vietnamese lady that was injured. So they dropped purple smoke to note that there was an injured civilian here. But as they kept observing, they saw an American come out and shoot the lady that they had just marked to pick up and help. This confused them, and they kept looking around, and Hugh Thompson radioed in. He said, it seems to be that there was a lot of killing going on. What's going on here? He landed his helicopter, and he had a conversation. I want to read a little bit of how this went. There's Hugh Thompson, Lawrence Colburn. They were given the medal... Let me make sure that I say this right. Um, Thirty years later, they were awarded the Soldier's Medal of the United States. It's the highest award for bravery not involved with direct enemy combat. But they saw that this lady was shot. They wondered what was going on. So Hugh Thompson lands his helicopter, and he gets into a conversation with fellow American soldiers. Thompson says, what's going on here, Lieutenant? And Callie responded, this is my business. What is this? Who are these people? Callie said, just following orders. Orders? Whose orders? Just following. But these are human beings. Unarmed civilians, sir. Look, Thompson, this is my show. I'm in charge here. It ain't your concern. As they were having this conversation... They saw another American soldier shoot more Vietnamese civilians that were in the ditch. And they they realized this is not right. Thompson gets back in his helicopter. They fly a little ways. And they're low on fuel. So they think we have to get back. But they radioed in for some help. 
and they noticed that they could try to save some civilians, and they landed their plane one more time, their helicopter, and one of the men, three men in the helicopter, got out, and this is the courageous sympathy part. Thompson, at this point, is under the conviction Whatever is going on here is drastically wrong. And he told his fellow men in the helicopter, when we get down, I want you to point your guns at the Americans. And if they keep coming, shoot. He told them, for the sake of the Vietnamese civilians, to turn their own guns on fellow Americans. Andrietta went into the ditch, and there was bodies shot up, covered with blood, But there was a young boy that they were able to save from the wreckage, traumatized and shock, and they pulled him out and put him on the helicopter. His name was Daba. Thirty years later, Lawrence Colburn had a reunion with Daba. And Daba spoke about this at the Vietnam Vietnam, uh, Mai Lai Memorial. And he said... I'm very glad to see the man who rescued me. He's a good man, but I still feel hatred for the soldiers who killed my mother, my brother, and my sister. In My Lai, 504 people died. Among the victims were 182 women, 17 of them pregnant, and 173 children, including 56 infants. Despite the eyewitnesses' report, the initial response from the government was to cover it up. Thompson went to his superiors, And they didn't really respond. They gave him a medal, tried to keep him quiet, but it didn't go anywhere further until there was a reporter who had also heard about the stories, and his name was Rittenhauer. He wrote to uh, Congress. He wrote to President Nixon. And as a result, three people took it seriously. But here's the letter that he wrote. I think that it was Winston Churchill who said... A country without a conscience is a country without a soul, and a country without a soul is a country that cannot survive. I feel that I must take some positive action on this matter. I hope that you will launch an investigation immediately and keep me informed of your progress. If you cannot, then I do not know what other course of action to take. Three people in Congress responded. So Thompson was called again to testify, and he did. But you know how he was treated by the American public at the time? There was a congressman that actually said he should be on trial as a war criminal because he ordered his men to turn his guns on fellow American soldiers. He had dead animals sent to his porch. He was given death threats. And of all that happened, only one person was ultimately held responsible It was Lieutenant Colley, and he was given three years and then ultimately pardoned by President Nixon. So there wasn't really true accountability. But there was this fascinating interview after the fact. Momentum started to pick up as people learned more and more about the atrocities that happened at Nilai. And one of the generals that was most responsible, a man by the name of Medina, said, no, I never saw any of this. It, it never happened. It didn't occur. And it's fascinating within this interview because Thompson responds, we saw him shoot a person right in the face. We saw the devastation of it. And I want to play just a short clip 
of the interaction on 60 Minutes as people are starting to realize, no, we need to be honest about this. We can't just sweep this under the rug. In fact, Hugh Thompson was a hero because he demonstrated courageous empathy to do the right thing, even though his government, our government, deemed him a traitor. So here's a short clip from 60 Minutes as they're starting to get recognized for the heroic act that they actually did. Thompson testified against Medina at his court-martial, but Medina was acquitted of all charges. In that interview back in 1969, Medina seemed to offer a justification for the killing of women and children. We had lost uh, uh, a lot of good people uh, that had served their country uh, in Vietnam uh, in a minefield due to sniper fire, due to uh, mines and booby traps. The entire area was heavily infested with mines and booby traps. Uh, when infantrymen approach an area, the uh, women and children will place these things out. And that, in effect, was his justification for Charlie Company doing what they did. And I, I suppose he believes the theory, if you don't want those mines and booby traps planted, it's okay to kill every child and woman. I just don't feel that way. We have a different opinion on that, obviously. There's a big difference between killing in war and murder. Cold-blooded murder. What do you call it when you march 100 or 200 people down in the ditch and line up on the side with machine guns and start firing into it? Reminds me of another story that happened in World War II, like the Nazis. There's no doubt about the fact that it was a war crime. No doubt in my mind. Before heading for home, Thompson and Colburn helped plant trees at a new My Lai Peace Park, a project sponsored by a Quaker group from Wisconsin. And they went to a ceremony honoring the victims of that war crime 30 years ago. The American ambassador to Vietnam, Pete Peterson, did not attend the ceremony. He told me he thinks it's time now to move on from the past, to look to the future. But Thompson thinks it would be a mistake to move on too quickly. I'm not a scholar. I don't know. Has the United States ever apologized? Or are we too big to apologize? It happened. The United States knows it happened. Uh, it's embarrassing. You can't go forward till you get it out of reverse. charged with the My Lai massacre but as I mentioned only one soldier William Cauley was held responsible and then him only three years with house arrest until he was pardoned by Richard Nixon Thompson died in 2006 and he was asking for some sort of a public apology three years later the one person that was somewhat held responsible, William Cauley spoke to a small gathering close to where he was under house arrest, and he gave an apology, and I want to show what he said here on the screen. There is not a day that goes by that I do not feel remorse for what happened that day in My Lai. I feel remorse for the Vietnamese who were killed, for their families, for the American soldiers involved, and their families. I... I'm very sorry. That doesn't make all the pain and the hurt go away, but the apology itself is also a courageous act. It's rare. What Thompson was asking for 
was we can't go forward until we get it out of reverse. We need people, leaders, that demonstrate, acknowledge we made a mistake. It's a courageous act. We need to honor the people that were first vilified, treated as traitors. Hugh Thompson was. Now he's recognized as a hero. And before his death, he spoke at military bases. He helped train young soldiers to teach them the American way. But in his life, it wasn't like that so much early on. Courageous empathy to do what's right, even in war, even in the complexities of that, to know the difference between war and murder. If you go to Me Lai now, where the killings took place, you will see this memorial. And I put a little blue arrow on the top section of all the devastation. There was pregnant mothers and children, and it was awful. But part of this picture as well is a small image of a helicopter. A helicopter that landed down and turned guns on fellow American soldiers to save innocent civilians. If you talk to Daba, the boy that was pulling out of the wreckage, he still has hatred, but he's also thankful that there's men like Hugh Thompson. According to the Bible and according to Jesus, the way to get it out of reverse is the path of not seeing our enemies as vile, as something less than human. It's about recognizing that we all bleed the same red blood. As we have empathy for our enemies, we walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus who says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, when men say all manner of evil against you, because so they also persecuted the prophets who came before you. Hugh Thompson went through a lot of stuff. It was not easy. Being courageous never is. But as I hope we're learning in this series on courageous empathy, it is perhaps one of the things that matters most when it comes to moral character, to stand up even against your own tribe, even against your own side, to do what is right. Jesus knew a little bit about what this was like. When they wanted to speak bad about him to point out that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah, they said things like, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. He's a Samaritan, a drunkard. Jesus associated not with the in crowd. He associated with the other. He loved them. And that was seen as a threat to the side that, was he, that he was on. In the conclusion of this series next week, we are going to look at ways that our empathy can actually transform enemies into legitimate friends. We'll share some stories of how people that were truly racist, people that were truly bigoted, were transformed by the genuine love of people that reached out, not with hatred for hatred, but with love for love. Martin Luther King expresses it like this, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. 
Only love can do that. Thank you.
You are all invited for the potluck following the service today, and so I will pray for that food and service here now. Dear God in heaven, give us courage to stand for what is right. Give us courage to be able to forgive, to be able to love, to be able to set ourselves and others free. Give us wisdom to know how to respond in complicated times. And as we leave this place today, I pray that you bless the food that we're about to eat to our bodies. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.